my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippian yourself, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only, even in Thessalonica. You sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, thanks, Mona. Uh, and good morning and welcome. Uh, my name's Andy, uh, pastor here, and it's great for us to be together and great to see familiar faces. Um, I bet I'll pray. Uh, as we get into this word. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for the reality of Jesus in our world, in our history, 
but what that means for us today. And Father, we pray that we might see him more clearly, that we might love him more dearly, and that we might trust and worship him more and more in our lives, in the everyday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been around the things of Christianity at all, uh, that passage uh, may be quite familiar. Lots of things that you might hold dear to yourself. You know, it thinks it speaks about praying, the importance of prayer. It speaks about anxiety. Uh, speaks about the secret of contentment, uh, conflict, financial partnership. Uh, lots of kind of ideas and things that we hold dear. But it's kind of the question's going to be asked: um, Why is it all here? Why does he kind of lump all these things right at the end of his letter? See, we. You know, as we work through the letter, we kind of go over weeks. Uh, but if you were hearing this, you would have heard all the last three chapters. And then you'd come up to this point, and as it was read in public, uh, you'd be hearing all the context of where it's come from. And you've got to remember, so the end of last, we didn't do it last week, but the week before, chapter 3, this is where he ended. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 20. He says, To the Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. That from it we await a saviour the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. See, Paul has just reminded these Christians who they are in Christ, where their home is, and he's told them what are they to do? They're to look to there and to live for that now. Uh, But what does that look like on the ground? I mean, the reality is for many Christians, they might start the Christian race, but they don't finish it. They might start strong, but they just lose sight and don't end well. They don't persevere. And Philippians was written for us as Christians so that we would persevere in the midst of the realities and struggles of life. And Paul does get very practical with this, doesn't he? Very practical uh, things that we will need to address and to think through so that we would persevere. Uh, I have four things four headings that I want us to think through this morning. The first thing is Paul wants us to be united in the Lord. Have a look at that in verse 2. He says, I don't know how to pronounce these words, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. It is interesting that as you read through Philippians, uh, conflict and disunity uh, keep coming up constantly throughout the chapters. Uh, And they're a threat to standing firm and persevering in the gospel side by side. Chapter 1, we have, you know, we meet those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition, out of their own gain. Chapter 2, there are those within the church that seem to have their own, a wrong attitude. Uh, It's about themselves and they don't have the attitude of Christ. Uh, Chapter 3, we meet those in the church who are preaching a different gospel to the the true gospel of Jesus. They're adding to the gospel. And now here in chapter 4, we have this conflict, this relational conflict between two kind of key founding leaders of the Philippian church, uh, Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, These these are people, these are Christians, right, who have laboured side by side in the gospel. They've laboured with Paul. Their names are written in the book of life. You know, they have tickets assuring them of their seat in the new creation. They're going to both sit together 
in heaven. They're going to sit at that glorious banquet of God. Yet, at present, there's this conflict, relational conflict. Now, of course, at some level, you know, we ought to expect that, shouldn't we? Like, as Christians, we know that we're not perfect. None of us kind of wake up thinking, I'm just God's gift to mankind. My wife definitely doesn't think that. I know when we have a true reflection of ourselves, we know that to be true and that living together, there is going to be conflict and relational disunity. But Paul, he's heard of this conflict and he urges them. He pleads with them. He entreats them to agree in the Lord. Now, I just want you to imagine hearing this for the first time, right? Imagine you've just read, you know, the first two chapters. You've just heard about their kind of linked missionary, like Josh and Nikki, uh, with Epaphrodite as he's gone out and come back. Uh, and then chapter three, he says to, uh, he says, I entreat Tom and I entreat, who am I going to pick? John, to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine if you're the Philippian church and you hear that, you're like, oh wow, okay, that just got very real, didn't it? I mean, Paul, he doesn't normally kind of name names, but he mentions this name because obviously this disagreement was big enough for him to address. Uh, we're not really given the exact nature, not given what exactly they were disagreeing o- over. It wasn't doctrine, but it was about them not agreeing in the Lord. And it's obviously affecting the whole church. Uh, too often this is the case, isn't it, in churches, that they, a disagreement among leaders means they will split. I did a quick research of the number of Protestant churches. Anyone want to have a guess how many Protestant, not Protestant churches, pro- Protestant denominations in the world there are? 200? Sadly, nowhere near it. Another guess? More? 20? More? Less. 33,000. Over 33,000 is the number of Protestant denominations in the world. I mean, Catholics, you know, they have a field day at this, don't they? They think there's only one true church. Uh, look at you guys always dividing, relationally splitting, making another denomination. Uh, no, it's just the reality of this relational tension that Paul's saying, now this is a reality that's going to be experienced in every church and we've experienced for the last 2,000 years. And he says you've got to deal with it appropriately. Agree in the Lord. I mean, it's not just denominations that have split, but you might be here and have moved on from a different church because of a relational disagreement. That might be your reality. Uh, it might not be you, but it might be people that you know whom have wor- moved on because of this relational disagreement. And it's toxic, isn't it? It's toxic to church life, and it's toxic to the very gospel that we believe. And Paul wants them to agree in the Lord. That word agree there in verse 2, it's the same word as the same mindset that Paul urged them to have in chapter 2, verse 2. You know, that he says to them, you ought to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. What is that mindset? He, he spells that out in chapter 2, isn't it? Who, Christ Jesus, though in eternity, in heaven, in glory with God, did not consider that something to grasp, but made himself a man. It's the, it's the Christmas event. He, he entered into his creation as a human, and not just entered as a human, he even humbled himself further. His mindset went to the cross, uh, it went to death on a cross to reconcile his enemies, to reconcile us to himself. That's a staggering mindset that 
uh, where God serves us in the gospel. Uh, And we are called to have that mindset with each other. And it's this mindset that we're to have so that we would agree with each other in the Lord. Conflict goes against the gospel that unites us in Christ. It's the very peace, that reconciliation that God won with God, which then flows out to have peace with each other because we who are forgiven know how to forgive. Uh, It's how we work out loving relationships. So it's not just Euodia and Syntyche that have to figure this out. It's actually the whole church. Did you notice that? In verse 3, he says, I ask you, true companion, to help these women. That See, the whole church is to help each other. Uh, I think the reason, this is just wisdom, right? The, the reason is because often it's, you need someone outside of a disagreement to help us see what's actually going on because the reality is we're blinded by our own sin, our own perspective. We're kind of unable to see others. And when you have someone else helping you chat through that, it helps you to hear the other perspective, hear how the gospel speaks into it and see, helps us to see the unity we have in Christ that we might be able to then offer that forgiveness or that first step in reconciliation. This is radical, right? This is so radical in our time. How do you deal with this? You just kind of cut off and ignore. You know, you're dead to me. You cancel them. But Paul, he's not saying that. He's saying, no, in the church, we want to be people who are radically gospel-minded and that we learn how to forgive in the Lord so that we might be able to live in unity and not disunity. That's the first implication that we have. Be united in the Lord. The second one Paul wants us to do is to rejoice in the Lord. I mean, joy comes up time and time again in the letter of Philippians. Uh, It's joy in gospel partnership. It's joy in their like-mindedness. It's joy in the faith. But here he commands us to have joy in the Lord. Have a look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, you might hear that and think, yeah, that's easy for you to say, Paul. You don't know my life. (laughs) You don't know what's going on, all the worries, all the anxieties, all the things that keep me up at life. Have you ever lived in this world? Uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to get through the next day. There are many concerns and worries that can rob us from our joy and the real peace that we have with God. But you've got to remember, Paul, where's he writing from? He's, you know, he's not having a latte sipping you know, on a, in you know, Fiji looking out over the water. No, he's in prison. He's in prison. He's in jail. He's chained to a guard, almost certainly like facing certain death. See, here Paul is commanding a joy that's not a feeling, but it's actually a perspective. It's not something that's based in circumstance, but it's actually a joy based in the Lord. Um, we do search for joy in so many different circumstances, and our feeling of joy just goes up and down, doesn't it? You know, I don't know if you had the cycle of the joy of the next holiday, but then you find that it just rains the whole time. You're like, you know, the joy of that next meal with friends, but you burnt whatever, you know, you burn it. Uh, when they cook, they never burn it. It's beautiful. Um, you know, I remember through COVID, it was kind of watching the, there was the parcels that would get delivered. I don't know if you did this in COVID, how you just went online and started ordering heaps of things. There's like little parcels of joy turning up. But what happened? It just, it just faded, didn't it? You know, you might be longing for that joy from relationship. It's so easy for us to kind of seek 
joy from circumstances, but that's fleeting and short-lived. Here, Paul is urging us to a deep, real, genuine joy that's in the Lord, not on circumstances. And how do we get that? Well, it's by lifting our eyes to what we have in the gospel, isn't it? See, it's a relationship with God that brings deep joy. We have so many reasons to be joyful. In Christ, he has loved us and served us and given us salvation, eternity forever with him. The one that we are brothers with Jesus is ruling from heaven. Our certainty, our future is assured. We are citizenships of heaven. Our seat is there ready for us when we come home. See, this is a joy within our soul, isn't it? It's not a joy dependent on chance or wealth or health or any other things we can't control. It's a joy dependent on the reality of a relationship with the Lord. So it's, he, he gives us more reasons for joy here. Have a look in verse 5. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. When I first read that, I was like, what the heck? Where's this the Lord is at hand coming from? I think it, the, what he's saying is the Lord is near. Uh, he's not distant and aloof, but the Lord who rules the world is near and it's a great comfort of source and source of joy. Uh, our circumstances change, but Christians can be people of deep joy because they can sing in spite of circumstances because of the joy of who God is and what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus. It's not that we don't have worries or anxieties, it's actually what we do with them that matters. That's, it's what we do with our very real concerns. You see that in verse 6? God knows us. He knows what we're like and he, he tells us how to live in this reality. Verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You know, when, when you just take that verse out of context and he says, Do not be anxious... I don't know whether that's helpful or not helpful. It's kind of like um, telling me when I'm starving, don't be hungry. You're like, well, I'm, I'm starving. You know, it, does, it doesn't help me, right? Kind of saying, are you serious? I'm well aware that anxiety is on the rise in our community. I mean, Beyond Blue states that one in four of us experience and suffer from anxiety. And the danger is if we just skim read that verse, it can often make us feel more anxious or more guilty because... You know, as you read it, you think, I am anxious, I'm feeling anxious, and it's telling me I shouldn't be feeling anxious. Uh, but hang on, uh, um, does that, what, what's that saying about who I am? Uh, but I'm still anxious. The point is, <laughs> don't worry about that, but it's what you do with your anxiety and your worries. Bring them to God, pray to God. See, God is near. He says, bring them to Him. Don't let them fester and stay in your head, but open them up. Let him know your needs, your problems and your desires and your wants. Uh, we do this because, not because he doesn't know about them, but because of the effect it has in our own heart. Did you notice that in verse 7 there, the promise of what happens when we bring our worries and our, effects to, our concerns to God? He said, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you're worried about life and you bring them to God, God's promise is the peace of God, which will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds with Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise we have right there from God. See, it's not that your circumstance might change if you pray about it. 
you know, and that you're waiting for God to change the circumstances so that you can be joyful or less anxious. But it's actually that there's a promise from God that he will guard your heart. See, what, what's he talking about there? Well, I think he's talking about this objective peace you have. See, it's this reality that it brings a perspective that you know who you are in Christ when you pray. You know that you're entrusting it to the very person who can do something about it. You'll know that your relationship with him is secure in, in all he has done. You don't need to worry. You have true peace with him. And not only do you have peace with him, not only is he present and knows about it, but you are in this relationship where he has promised your eternity and your good. See, I think that's what happens when you're in the midst of it. Uh, before Carol's last week, it was a Tuesday morning, I was, I was telling our Bible study this, um, and then we studied this passage that night. I just, I, I was like really anxious about what was going to happen with Carol's. There's all sorts of things that uh, weren't coming together and I just, it kept kind of building up. Uh, and then that night we get to this passage and it says, do not be anxious. And I think, oh, what a gift from God. Just a, a rebuke, but also a gift. Because as we prayed about it, it's like, okay. Uh, my, my wife did tell me, have you prayed about it? Which is always little bits of good wisdom to, you know, for someone to tell you when you're feeling overwhelmed and anxious. Have you prayed about it? It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right, pray about it. Uh, see, it's this perspective of our secure relationship with God of the one who promises to guard our hearts that will mark someone who has deep joy. Are you someone that has deep joy? As you reflect on your life, are you someone that is praying about everything to God, bringing your anxieties to Him, knowing that He's near, that He promises to guard your heart? See, that's the second thing. Paul wants us to get the gospel, to live it out in our complexity and our worries by praying to him. Now, the third thing, and the third concrete thing Paul raises for us is the idea of contentment. Now, I don't know anyone who doesn't want to be content. All of us want to be content, don't we? But do you know anyone who will say with their hand on their heart that they are content? See, our world, especially our world here in the West, it thrives of our slavery to discontentment, doesn't it? It feeds off our appetite to buy and sell more goods. Think of just your day, like the days this weeks, the ads that you've seen, every um, ad in every magazine, every billboard that you drive past, every kind of post on social media, uh, in every shopping centre. I'm a total sucker at Audi. I feel like Audi's marketing is my demographic. I don't know, like mid-30s, it's just, I go through that middle aisle, with all the, I'm like, I need that, I need that, oh, yep, yep. Mary's like, do not go there. I don't know if, if that's just, I don't know if that's a constant for every age, but I feel like it, it sucks, it sucks me in, my discontentment. You know, one of the other things I was reflecting on, for the last six years, I've upgraded my phone every two years. Uh, not because I need a new phone, like my phone was still working, but just purely because my new phone would be better. Uh, it, may, it might be a little bit faster, I can take better photos, uh, a little bit better condition. Uh, our world thrives off our discontentment. And it, you know why these ads, you know why Audi got walking through that thing works? It's because our heart is tricked into thinking that this next thing 
might bring the contentment that we long for. You know, that's been every heart since Adam. It's been deceived into thinking that the cure for our discontentment is the ability to get the next thing, chase the next experience. Um, I don't know if you fall into this trap of thinking, you know, I'd love to be content. Uh, I'm sure I'd be content if only this would happen. Uh, You know, you fill that in. If only I went on a holiday where it doesn't rain all the time, then I'd be content. You know, maybe if only I had the job that my boss has, because, you know, what he does looks easy, I'm sure if I was doing that, I'd be more content than I am now. Maybe it's an if only I was in that relationship that I'd long for. If I had that, I'm sure I would be content. You know, it might be just if only you had a better kitchen. (laughs) If only you were owned property instead of renting. If only the surf was better and less crowded, e.g. you didn't live in Botany. If only, do you play that if only game with yourself? If only, you know, and you think, then I'll be content. But time and time again, isn't it? It's always something missing. There's always something that doesn't fulfill. And I think that's because we're wired this way. All of us are wired this way. And this side of heaven, our complete contentment, I think won't be found. And it's good for us to realise this. But it means we can stop chasing it in the wrong place. We can actually go to the place where it is found, and that is in Jesus. Uh, We can chase contentment in Jesus. Have a look at verse 10. Again, like joy, it's not in circumstances, but contentment is found in relationship with God. Verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length that you have revived your concern for me. You were for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, very similar to joy, isn't it? It's not about the change in circumstances that will bring contentment. It's actually about knowing the one who rules over the circumstances. Paul's in jail. He says, I've learned that contentment doesn't come from being wealthy or bankrupt. It doesn't come from being free or in chains or sick or healthy. It doesn't come from being popular or a loner. No, in all these situations, contentment comes from knowing Christ. It's verse 10, it's in Christ who I rejoice in. It's knowing that relationship I have in him. And Paul you know, it's, it's easy to read this thing and think, oh, yeah, Paul's saying that because he's kind of saying thank you to the Philippians for their gift, isn't he? But he, at two times, he's at length to say, no, actually, it's not about the gift. Verse, 10, verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking in need, or verse 17, he says, not that I seek your gift. But he's saying, I've learnt that contentment is found in Jesus. And it's something that you can learn. It's not natural to humans, but you learn it. Verse 12 he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to be abound. In, every, in any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance of need. So I don't know whether you can kind of think that some people might have a disposition to be more content than others. You know, poor, oh yeah, he's just a bit laid back and chilled about everything. Uh, no. He's had to learn contentment. Uh, things bother him. He's had to learn to look to Jesus in his contentment and look to him 
who is over the, our situation and circumstances. Uh, secondly, contentment, it's not an, a thing that we earn, but it's actually given by God. You notice that in verse 13? He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, the all things there, that is in context about his contentment, isn't it? It's straight above it. So he's able to, in plenty or in need, uh, he's, in any circumstance, he's able to continue on. See, for him, the all things there is about being content. He knows the one who is in control over everything. He knows that he has promised that he will help him get through. I mean, this verse has got to be one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, doesn't it? Uh, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I've got an image that should come up. Do we have images? Does anyone know this guy, Tim Tebow? Does anyone see what's on? He's got four Philippians 4.13. What about this one? This is for you, Manuel. I can do all things. You know, this is Steph Curry, uh, you know, one of the greatest three-point shooters in NBA of all time. Anyway, uh, you know, they put these things, which at one level, if you're a Christian, I don't want to kind of rag that. I think it's good to stand up for Jesus. But to put this verse on your shoe or on your thing as you're playing basketball or footy, it kind of goes against the very point, doesn't it? That, I think about it. If you're the coach of Steph and you're thinking, yeah, I wonder what that thing's about. I can do all things. You read, the read chapter 4 and you think, actually, the very point of that verse is to do the very opposite of what you're trying, what this is trying to achieve, right? You know, I can, I can achieve everything, but the point of the verse is to say, actually, it doesn't matter. Whether you win or lose, it doesn't matter. I'm content in Christ, and God can give me the strength to do that. Wouldn't you be saying, hey, I'll take that off your, uh, you know, I'm going to put you on the bench, you can't play for us, with, if that's your attitude. Um, <laughs> anyway. It's really helpful to read in context, but the point is, God is contentment. That's the all things there. And he spiritually works in our heart that we are freed from greed and envy, and he enables a contentment in all circumstance. The secret is to know the one who rules over every situation and to trust him. Verse 19, there's a wonderful promise for, for uh, we have as Christians. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. It is this eternal perspective that we can have contentment, isn't it? We have a heavenly Father that in Christ has made us, he loves us, and he controls all things, and he has adopted us into his family. See, what more could we possibly need? He doesn't promise that he'll give us every desire and every want, but he promises that he'll give us every need. Paul wants us to see what we have in Christ and live in light of that. We've got to ask ourselves, uh, if we are here and we continue to struggle with discontentment, is it because we're looking for it in the wrong places? Are we still living in the if-only trap? Are we anxious for the circumstance to change, but we're forgetting the cure and easing relationship with God? Living in discontent will rob us of our joy and rob us of our security in Christ. The reality is God can make us content. That's what he's in the business of doing. It won't come about through a change in circumstance, but it will come about through a change in your perspective about what matters in this life. And what truly matters is your relationship with the Lord Jesus. 
Now, Paul then goes on for the last thing, point four. That was my longest one. We've got one more thing. Uh, he, he goes on and he speaks about a partnering generously in the gospel together. Now, this, I think, comes out of that last point. So those who are freed from their kind of striving in life for themselves and from feeling like they need to look after number one, actually those that can live as Jesus lived and think about others are those who will partner generously in the gospel. The Philippian church have done this. Have a look in verse 14. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church into partnership with me in the giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once again. See, the Philippians had caught what Paul was telling them about contentment and joy in the Lord. They were satisfied in him and out of that point of being served by God, they gave generously. They were able to not hang on to what they had but share in Paul's trouble in verse 14. Uh, when, when you share in the troubles, it's literally talking about giving him financial support. Uh, he, they, they supported them. Now notice how them giving Paul this gift it, firstly, it blesses Paul, obviously. It helps him out, he says that. But he's not so much concerned with that, but more about what it does for the giver. Uh, it blesses them. Verse 17, have a look at what he says there. He says, It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, this fruit isn't kind of like, uh, you know, some kind of credit that you build up with God. No, salvation attorney is a free gift from God. But he is kind of speaking in an economic way about when you give financially, you know, what happens to your bank account? It, your money goes down, your account drops. But he's saying from a spiritual perspective, that, is, that gift is actually credited to your account. See, God works in the giver. Uh, see, there's, there's benefits to the receiver, yes, but the benefits are actually what he's talking about here for the giver. Uh, now, we kind of get this, don't we? I mean, we're coming to Christmas. You know the joy of getting a present that just nails, like that your kids just love, or someone else, a family member, where you're like, I've just picked that right present. Uh, there's joy and there's benefit to giving the right thing. That's what Paul is rejoicing here. He's rejoicing not just, he's rejoicing about the, the work that God has done in their life. Uh, it's what them, them partnering with him financially, giving the gift. He's seeing the fruit of God at work in their hearts. That brings him great joy. Someone who gets the gospel, that uses their earthly goods to bring about heavenly good that lasts for eternity. Uh, the Bible's always known this reality about the, the joy giving to the giver. Um, but, you know, recently in 2014, I've got a, a uh, I think there's another one here, um, two sociologists discovered this truth. Uh, you know, they did a whole bunch of research uh, and found that those who practice giving away what they had are, are actually more happy. Uh, they wrote this book, The Paradox of Generosity. Have a look at the subtitle. I don't know if you can see it. It says, uh, Giving we receive, grasping we lose. I wonder if they studied Philippians at all. But see, generosity here comes by trusting God, comes by practicing what you know about God to be true, that he will supply your every need that he has deep wells and large supply, but it comes by knowing the joy of being able to partner together in the gospel. Um, 
Paul there, he, he talks about their gift and their partnering in kind of worship language. To have a look at that in verse 18. He says, I received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Me, you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. See, as they financially support gospel ministry, that very act is like a, a worship act. It's, it's an act that reflects a heart that is gripped by God and wants to worship God. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? A God who has met all our needs so we can trust in Him and we can worship God by being content and joyful in giving to others and for their benefit. It would be hard for us to go away from this passage without reflecting for a moment on our own attitude towards giving. Man, it's not just money that we give. You know, it is, it is money, but it's not just money. It's our time, it's our belongings, our homes, our cars, whatever it is, it's our relationships that we can give. Um, but it was Martin Luther who did say, you know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said, people go through t- three conversions. He doesn't literally mean three conversions, but he says the conversions of their head, their heart, and their pocketbook. Unfortunately, not all at the same time. What, what's he getting at there? He's getting at, you know, what we do with our money, our time and our treasures, actually reveals what our hearts worship. It reveals what we're on about. It reveals what we worship and what we see as important. And it reveals what kind of perspective we have of life. Are we just gaining for the here and now with no respect for a thing's eternity? Or do we want to invest into the things of eternal value where people will come to know the Lord Jesus. Friends, Paul, he has gotten real practical with us as he's finished his letter and there's real implications for living this out as we as a church community do that. And it affects our whole of life from our money to our contentment to our joy and our relationships. And the key and the foundation to all this is knowing who you are in Christ, that relationship you have in him and what he has done for you. And as we as community do that, I want us to keep reflecting on Jesus so that we might be able to stand side by side together, that we might be able to run the race and that God might be able to complete that work in us and that the gospel might ring here but also in Botany and beyond. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus and thank you, thankful for this letter that points us uh, to the joy of knowing him. Father, we pray that we might be so radically transformed in our lives that we would live this out. Thank you that Jesus did not come to be served, but came and served and gave his life as a ransom for us. And we pray, Father, that we might respond by trusting him, bringing all things in prayer to you, and that we pray that you might grant us the contentment and joy of knowing that peace comes through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.